0: Hello, welcome to the theology podcast. Once again, virtually uh, meeting through Zoom. I, I I imagine that everybody in our listening audience has now had an, an an opportunity to enjoy the blessing of Zoom. I've got this is this is this is one of uh, several Zoom meetings for me today. This is the second of four. How about you guys? You got any any other Zoom meetings lined up for the day?
1: Not today, but I have a. Number of others during the week at different points. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was on uh,
2: two yesterday. I think one the day before, and then Saturdays they will be for the next month and a half. So, and then Wednesdays. So, yeah, there's a lot of Zoom. I'm doing a lot of Zoom. Doing a
0: lot of Zoom in, A lot of in. <laughs> so now, now for you, Tom. I mean, like a Saturday is like a whole day.
2: Yes, and and uh, but what I've been able to do is uh, uh, move things to where they're actually. Videos and then discussion on Saturday, so it breaks down the the all day kind of because uh, most people with kids, family, and everything at home are able to do full right, day. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, welcome again to the theology podcast. My name is C. R. Wiley. I'm the uh, senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut, and I've written a bunch of stuff. Tom, introduce
2: yourself. Tom Price, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary.
1: Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of European history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And we see, Glenn, that we are
0: in yet another beautiful setting with you, and I imagine you'll tell us about it in a minute. It's uh, your show today, and I know what the subject is, and so does Tom, but We'll uh, let you talk about it. We don't want to steal your thunder. But before we get to that, uh, last time we uh, had our show, we talked about our Indiegogo campaign. And that's been launched. And we have made good progress this past week. We are a quarter of the way to our goal of $4,000. And uh, so we appreciate all the folks who have made pledges. And I know that you're breathlessly awaiting your uh, pug glass or your pug. T-shirt or both. Well, we've got those in the works, and uh, hopefully, we'll be able to get those out uh, to you shortly after the campaign ends. The campaign goes for sixty days. I think we're on day what is? Well, we've had a week, so I guess it's fifty. We're on day fifty-four or something like that. Fifty-three yet to go. uh, So, since we're only a week in, but Mm -hmm. uh, uh, if you would like to help us out, we'd appreciate it. And you can find a link in the in the show notes. Uh, on whatever the podcast platform you're listening to this on, or you can go to YouTube where we have the Theology Podcast YouTube channel, or you can visit our Facebook page, the Theology Podcast page on Facebook.
1: Anyway, enough of that. So, Glenn, what are we talking about today? Well, today we're going to look at a concept that uh, has largely been lost in our culture, but I think is worth taking another look at, and that's chivalry and in fact that's why you are looking at a medieval city from southern france this is carcassonne uh carcassonne is actually uh goes back well before the middle ages the found the foundations for a lot of the walls around the city uh date to the visigothic period late wow. roman Empire. and but it's been built up ever since uh through the centuries uh, and it's the site of any number of medieval movies they that were filmed <laughs> here. <on. laughs> so, this is Carcassonne and and since we're doing chivalry, I thought a medieval site would be appropriate. Great. So, go ahead and and let's jump
0: in. What what do you want to say to get us started, Glenn?
1: Okay, well, let let's just take a look at at chivalry as a concept, where it comes from. Um chivalry originally simply was a word that meant cavalry.
2: It comes ah.
1: from cheval meaning horse. Hmm. The chivalry were the horsemen, the cavalry, the knights, uh, in the early Middle Ages. From there, the term more or less shifts in meaning to the ethos and the values of that class, the knights and the nobles. And originally, this was really basically the martial virtues, You know, its strength, its courage, its stamina, its loyalty... Uh, it's uh, self-sacrifice, all of those kinds of things that you want in a warrior, that you want in a soldier. And so originally it was just like I said, simply a a term, actually not much different from the Roman word virtus. Yeah, that's what came to mind. Yeah, It refers to almost precisely the same things in its original use. As time goes on, however, two other influences start coming in that shape chivalry. Uh, one of them is the church, uh, the idea, you know, the ideals of the gospel that you want to be uh, to uh, defend the poor, defend the helpless against the aggressor, those kinds of things. Um, and then with that, there is a very strong Christian component that gets added into even the rituals that make you a knight. Um, and then the other part that comes in somewhere around the 12th century in southern France, actually not too far from Carcassonne here, uh, it's the courtly love tradition and that's going to start with Eleanor of Aquitaine really in her court and uh, that's going to add to it a particular devotion to you know to women and upholding them and and well a whole range of other things some of which is are positive values and some of which are emphatically not um, uh, courtly love tends to glorify adultery for example not not a particularly good thing. Hmm. But these three elements, the the martial, the religious, and the courtly love tradition, come together to form the ideals that characterize medieval chivalry. Now, we do have another problem with chivalry, and that's the question. Now, historians are are always arguing about things like this. There's a question of whether what we're dealing with in chivalry ever actually existed. So when you read the, the Arthurian romances... You see these epitomes of chivalry, but they were from an earlier era. They were back in this golden age when knights were really what knights should be, and they they behaved properly as good Christian knights and courtly love tradition and all of that sort of thing. You read Mallory, you read all of these the Arthurian romances, you read the other chivalric romances, they're always set in the past. So, so
0: this this course, this this is amusing because I just watched Camelot. With okay. My the other day, you know, and of yeah. course, you've got Lancelot, same way, you know, you yes, know, about how, how, how humble he is. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> it's me. It's me. Had I, had I been made the partner of Eve, we'd be in Eden still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, chivalry actually, when in the literature of the period, chivalry is always this ideal from some golden age in the past. So it's a question how much it really existed. Hmm. Uh, the, probably the one example of someone that I could point to that almost matches the ideals, and I'm not going to go into this guy's history, but he's worth looking up, is a guy by the name of William the Marshal. William the Marshal was, I think, almost indisputably, the greatest knight of medieval Europe. This is a man who never lost a tournament. When he was in his 60s, the young bucks around him were scared to death of him. <laughs> I mean, you know, he was you know, he was he he was just incredible, but he yeah. also held yeah. the ideals very highly.
0: He's about the only one yeah. I know. So now now William the Marshal, is this Marshal in terms of martial uh you know arts or is this marshal no, no. in terms of like the, a, like an author? The title,
1: the title of marshal means the, the guy who's in charge of the cavalry, the cavalry commander. Hmm. So he was the marshal of England under Henry the Second Plantagenet, uh, under Richard, and under John.
0: Okay. So he's got some connections to some pretty uh significant kings and
1: Yeah. yeah. And and despite the fact that he's from a relatively low noble background himself, the guy was just so impressive and so you know, to, to to put William in perspective. Henry II asked William at one point to to dissolve his oath to Henry II and instead swear an oath of loyalty to Henry's son, who was going to be the heir to the throne. Because he said, look, young, the young Henry needs a firm hand to help guide him along. Well, young Henry, it turned <coughs> out, ended up revolting against Henry II. And William, because his oath was now to Henry Jr., William fought on the side of Henry Jr. against Henry II, even though he thought this was a terrible idea. When Henry Jr. died, Henry II took William back, even though he'd fought against him. <laughs> he knew William, and he knew that William was just doing what William swore he would do. And if William swore loyalty back to Henry Sr., he was going to live by it. Wow. <clears throat> So because of that, Henry, uh, excuse me, William has been described as, as the epitome of chivalry and sort of the last and maybe the only real representative of it because he was so strict in terms of following these ideals. Now, the, reason, now, the historical stuff is really interesting, but the reason I brought it up um, has to do with uh, uh, something C.S. Lewis wrote. And there was a doodle that I sent around. yeah. Uh, about this to you guys, which yes. he will, I'm sure, put in the show notes, where where C.S. Lewis was talking about the importance of chivalry for today. Hmm. Essentially, what he said is, we need people who can operate on sort of the, we need men who can operate on both ends of the spectrum. They, they have to be able to be fierce they have to have, uh, to use the old word, prowess. They've got to be able to fight and contend and hold their own and maintain all of the martial virtues that were at the foundation of what chivalry was, on the one hand. But on the other hand, when it isn't time to go to battle, they have to be gentle and courteous and respectful and humble and all of those kinds of things. And this, this, weird bifurcation that chivalry sort of demanded is uh is something that lewis really thought was essential for our day and that had been utterly lost you know if you look at something like um if you look at something like the abolition of man where he talks about men without chests Mm -hmm. seeing the loss of one or arguably both sides of the the, uh, the coin with chivalry, the balance in chivalry. Hmm. So I thought that that would be a worthwhile idea to explore. How exactly do we recover both sides of this? Because frankly, what I see are a lot of people who are timid and all of that sort of thing in places where they need to be strong and loud and aggressive in places where they need to be soft.
0: That's an interesting inversion. I, I think I'm I'm on I'm on board with that. I've seen the same thing. I yeah. can see you've got something you wanted to say, Tom.
2: No, I, I think it was the same as his, his latter point. It's that that's the curi- the curious thing is the way these things have really gotten out of balance and and if not flipped <laughs> and and then um, you know as Lewis said the, the thing that keeps them proportioned has been basically pulled out, removed. <laughs> and therefore you have these extremes um, rather than you have having a a you know integrated human and and man able to to carry these out the right way in the right orders in relation to the right things. Um, and so that's sort of what uh and, and I think it's you see I think you see this especially in the way in which Men trying to carry out being a man in society um, have lost that sort of roadmap, and 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 you see, you know, you see the therapeutic, for example, try to come in, but it's not geared towards that. It's geared toward the 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 emotional, strictly in the feeling realm, and it doesn't address any of that disintegration that I think Lewis was trying to to recapture. Right.
0: right. You know, one of the things I think, uh, uh, is true is that paradoxically when a, when a man embodies chivalry in the way you describe, Glenn, he's respected <clears throat> even today. But I think that the pedagogy, the pedagogy of our society is unable to create that kind of man. So you've got this, this problem where, where. You know, uh, uh, you know, as Tom notes, young men don't really know how to get from point A to point B, and they're not really sure it's okay to get there. They kind of feel like they need to be a pajama boy all the time, super sensitive, you know, and, uh, you know, supporting all the right causes and that kind of thing. And, and then if they is- ever have to, if they ever have any sort of confrontation, they become kind of shrill, if yeah. you know what I mean.
2: Right. And the flip side is when they do, when they naturally resist the pajama boy type, and they want to take on something that is much more, you know, aggressive. Um, you know, to show their bravado, um, they take on, you know, the gangster. You know, the yeah, exactly. the 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 rapper. The the right, this. Right. You know the kind of the person who can navigate the city, the the neighborhood, the hood. Yeah. You know, yeah, and so right. it 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 doesn't. You know, it doesn't.
0: Uh, right. Keep, yeah, I it think that's exactly right. So if you if you're a white guy, then you try to be like, uh, you know, like uh, you know, the
1: Godfather.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That <laughs> yeah, yeah. guy. Then you try to be iced tea. You
1: know. You yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Or or you go the the direction of the uh, skinhead white supremacist. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The, uh, the worst of the worst of the uh, of the heathen tradition, right? Um, the worst of yeah. that, or you do something along those lines. The the thing that I find interesting on this is that we, you know, if you look at how they tell you to deal with bullies at school, in the old days, back when I was a kid, <laughs> when when you were going de- to deal with a bully, the way you did it is. You punched them out. <laughs> you can't do that now. Yeah, yeah. Which, which all of that does is it actually for people who are inclined to bully it. You know, they just sort of laugh it off and they keep coming. Or well, two they keep what, coming. It, they go online and get nasty there.
0: Yeah, and, and no, also so what so. what occurs is that it 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 fosters a kind of dependency upon authority figures that I think is unhealthy. Mm. You know, you really need to have competence on your feet in order to get along or get get through the world. Well, you not know to think, you know, and conduct yourself in very, you know, in, in difficult circumstances. So, so, you know, over the years, I found myself in various situations. And and one of the things that's uh, saddened me or sort of uh, alarmed me about many young people is their uh, inability to deal with crisis. Um, they more or less just kind of they're like get the deer in the headlights kind of thing And they're unable to to sort of think their way through it And I think partly because they've always had an authority figure to appeal to you know when things get tough
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, there's a martial arts guy I know, um who I will not name here who says that violence isn't How does he put it? It's something like Violence isn't always the answer, but when it is, it's the only answer. Right, right. That's true. And um, that's, you know, that, that's a situation that, that we are sort of systematically trying to prevent people from ever needing to confront, which in an ideal world you would never have to, but we're not in an ideal world. We're in a fallen and sometimes violence happens, and sometimes it's really the
0: only answer. Well, this gets me thinking a little bit about uh, William Blake. I just got William Blake's, uh, il- you know, illuminated books. It, so all of his illuminated books have been, you know, reproduced in this really marvelous bound volume. But I'm thinking about that, you know, the Songs of Innocence and Experience, the tiger. Yeah, 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 you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, so here we have the tiger, and 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 Blake is 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 sort of a thinking aloud or wondering aloud. How could the same God who made the lamb make the tiger?
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. You
0: know, So how do, we, how do we hold these things together even in ourselves? So, you know, if we think about, you know, we joked a little bit earlier about uh, Lancelot, but Lancelot was celebrating what you just described, this ability that Lewis talks about on the one hand to kill you. Yeah, right. and on the other hand, to raise you from 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 death, you know, if you remember in Camelot the film and mm-hmm. the the scene where he he bests everybody at the tournament and, and actually kills a guy, <laughs> and then prays it's, over him, weeping for him to come back to life, and
2: he does. And and it's, it, and it's interesting following the the Blake point because Blake, Blake in the in the same writings he he has this fascinating way of taking these two things that kind of have, have become bifurcated and saying that if they were properly ordered, they, they, they could all be celebrated. So he has the famous one. He goes, you know, dear mother, dear mother, the church is cold, cold, but the alehouse is very warm. So if at the church they could give him some ale, the whole world would regale, you know, he goes on this whole line, <laughs> and, but it, it, it's a similar point you have here. You have something that separated from the virtues of godliness um, becomes drunkenness, right? Yeah. Right, um, but right. then you have separated from from life in the celebration of creation. The church becomes cold, and it's very similar with these these kind of the, these virtues and dispositions. You you rip one off from the other, and they're not integrated the right way. You don't you don't end up with with you know things ordered the proper way, and therefore the imbalance creates something far far worse. Right. Um, because of its, its having to make up for the lack of not being properly
1: integrated. I would argue that Blake has the wrong analogy. It's not the tiger and the lamb. It's the lion and the lamb. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he stayed what, away from lion for that very reason. I don't but, know. But that's something we have to keep in mind. The lion and the lamb are integrated in Christ. Well, yeah, that's a that's a great point, and one and of the as things, Christians we need to recognize that.
0: And and I remember years ago uh, someone telling me that what what women really want in a man is a killer who can cry. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you know,
1: <laughs> so and and that brings up actually another point where that I wanted to go to. On the one hand, we have an entire educational system and philosophy of raising kids that are pushing boys away from things that used to be considered essential, you know, which is the ability to handle yourself physically um, on multiple levels, including defending yourself. Right. Because you want to fight, but because you don't want to fight, and so you need to be able to handle yourself so that the situation doesn't come up. You know, We've we we got a system that, that pushes us radically away from that on the one hand. So what happens? What are boys young men proverbially doing now? They're sitting on their computers playing first person shooters. Right. Yeah. Right. There is something you know now now I want to pull this back to sort of metaphysical concepts. There's something about the Y chromosome. There's something about masculinity that I think naturally craves some sort of excitement some sort of challenge something that pushes beyond sort of the 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 sort of soft everyday life and wants something more if they don't have it in their real life they will look for it online and they're going to look for it online in the form of video games and in the form of pornography
0: or you know uh, the more i guess more testosterone driven guys will Mm -hmm. be thrill thrill seekers Who Mm -hmm. bungee jump off of bridges and stuff? Right now, you know, I, you know, all that, all that stuff. I think in the past was sublimated in a way that it was redirected toward socially productive things. Right. So there's a reason why entrepreneurs are, you know, in terms of, you know, when we think about, well, for example, when when we look at the Fortune 500 and we see who runs the Fortune 500, it's about 95 percent men. And there's a reason why this tends to happen, and that's because the guys who found the companies are men, and they're unlikely to want to just hand over <laughs> the reins of a company that they founded just because it would look good to the social justice crowd. So uh, there's, a kind, there's a risk-taking that, uh, that sometimes is mocked I, you've probably seen these memes, why, you know, memes that have, you know, the, the, the punchline is, you know, why men live, you know, don't live as long as women. Now, the, for, but for me, my, my, my point is, is the reason why women live so long is because of guys like that. In other words, if we, if women didn't have those men protecting them, they'd be dead. Mm-hmm. Those are the guys. Those are exactly the guys who go into burning buildings, who catch the bad guy, who charge, when they're commanded to charge in battle and have the physical wherewithal to actually win. So all that kind of stuff, you know, in fact, you know, I think that, you know, when you think about in the past, that risk-taking sort of a propensity that young men have was encouraged because civilization needed that. Go west, young man. You know, f- we, we need you to do this. You're the only, in fact, you're the best choice for the job. No one is as strong as you, as fast as you, can kill like you. <laughs> you know you what know, I'm getting at? Old men can't do it. Women can't do it. Children can't do it. You've got the job. Go do it. We need you to do it. No one's sending that message today because everything has been domesticated.
1: Okay. Now, think about the, the, the three aspects of chivalry I talked about before. The, the martial. The courtly love tradition and the church. We have systematically downplayed the martial in the culture. We've got a cult of safety in society. Tell me about it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that,
1: if, that. if
0: someone tells me to be safe one more time, I think I'm going to kill
1: somebody. Yeah, so, so, if, so <laughs> we, we we're constant. Yeah, you know, we've got helicopter parents. They don't want their kids taking risks. All of these kinds of things. Um, so risk-taking is gone. That's sort of the prowess side of things. We don't want that. We have created a church culture that is- Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. That, that, that again downplays what would be traditionally considered masculine virtues and things like that in favor of Jesus is my boyfriend songs.
0: And they in fact some of these guys actually mock traditional masculine traits. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, in, and you think about it by parallel <laughs> or analogy. Analogy is the better word, not parallel. Um, by analogy, we've done the same thing with domesticating God. I mean, right. we basically, you know, the vulnerable God, right? The, the the you know jesus the vulnerable god that you know uh, william plaker's famous I, I get what they're up to they're trying to talk about how the power of god is so profound that even in jesus's vulnerability as a human but, crucified but, but let's be honest let's be
0: honest tom yeah you, know, you you were at oxford i was at harvard you know the, the, the people who promote this kind of stuff couldn't defend themselves even no, if they wanted no, to
2: no <laughs> <laughs> and, and and to even think that they would have to defend themselves and not even in maybe argument anymore um but yes i mean you you've seen what what contrast the you know the moral attributes of god of a jonathan edwards or 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 another time um to to the the therapeutic you know papa i mean i, I was at a church once where the guy came out and and he's just hey god you know like cool brother. You know? Yeah. I almost had one of those moments where, you know, like in the New Testament where they kind of rip the garbage. <laughs> But but I mean I you know when when it, it's like Stanley Harwas said when he visited a, a, one of the local Baptist seminaries for a debate he goes this their chapel looks like my living room <laughs> it, was, it was that kind of thing um, and and I think you know when when God has become so casual and and the when you're talking about omnipotence I mean even the nominalists understood what omnipotence
0: well you know get, getting this whole idea of you know. Uh, a proper regard for authority. I remember one time I was called in for jury duty in Boston and some guy had, you know, some judge who came in to sort of, you know, to talk to us prospective jurors had many, I guess he'd watched too many episodes of night court. (laughs) He had the jeans on underneath his robe. He was just like, Hey, Hey, how you doing? You know, he's very friendly. And, you know, he's, you know, and and here I am, I'm, I'm being called in for jury duty. I do not want to be there. The only reason I'm there is Fear. (laughs) <laughs> That's it. And so I'm like, you know, he sa- he says, call me Bob, Judge Bob. And I say, you know, I think to myself, you know what, Ju- Judge Bob, if it, if it was just you, I'd be out of here. But there's a bunch <laughs> of guys behind you with guns and looking very, very intimidating that make your whole I'm just Bob routine ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? If, if, if police officers and people in authority just were like, Touchy-feely, uh, our society would become, uh, you know, it would be taken over by, you know, the mafiosos who would take it over. Anyway, enough of my
1: routine. It, back to you, Glenn. Yeah, so any, anyway, the, the, the point is we have lost, if, you know, if you consider this a court of three strands, we've lost the marshal with no emphasis on that, no emphasis on prowess, replace that with safety our understanding of God and God's demands on us, which is the essence of what the Christian contribution to chivalry is. It is that God places demands on us that we need to live up to. And those demands mean that we're going to use our prowess. We're going to use our physical abilities. We're going to use all of those things for the defense of the weak, for the defense of the faith. We have an a very undemanding face.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, in contrast that with say, you know, an Athanasius or, or you know or or you know, a, a St Nicholas would
1: pump punch an Arian in the face.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah I but one of my one of my favorite memes is an icon of St. Nicholas that says, uh, I've come to bring presents and to punch heretics, and I just ran out of presents. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, go, go on, I, because I, I'm about to move to women as the next okay, one. Okay, well, I, go ahead,
2: Chris.
0: Well, well, I think, though, you know, we, we've talked about sort of the social ethos or the sort of the ethos of our culture right now, which does not encourage the martial. Um, but I also think that... Um, this other side is not even recognized in our in our current culture as you know, either. You know, when I what I see with regard to gentleness, meekness, you know, ser- service, you know, these these you know sort of dimensions, this sort of other side of chivalry. What what's replaced it is a kind of mawkishness, a kind of niceness, motivism, you know, niceness. Niceness. Well, we've had an episode on niceness. Yeah. (laughs) But there's this uh, smoothness, this this sort of, you know, not wanting to cause a ripple, but also a kind of emotivism that uh, I think
1: is unhealthy. Yeah. And another place I'm going to move on. The other place where that unhealthy emotivism or unhealthy emotion more generally is found is... Once again, the entire courtly love tradition. Now, like I said, there were negatives about the courtly love tradition. It only applies to the upper classes and so on. There's a whole bunch of things we could get into there. But at the very least, it was built around the concept that women are there to be respected. You know, you, you quote love and you serve your lady. You serve women. Um, and th- they're to be protected, they're to be respected. That has been replaced by by pornography, which is as misogynistic an industry as exists. It's built around exploitation of women. It's built around objectification of women. And increasingly, it's built around violence against women. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, we have taken all of the things of chivalry, however much we may make fun of it, you know, and, and there are things about chivalry that, that deserve at least a little bit of, of ridicule. But however much that may be, we've taken every aspect of it and completely gutted it in our culture. We've got a culture that is really the anti-chivalric culture. And the question that really comes to my mind then is, do, is this really the world you want to live in? Hmm. And for, for, you know, I grew up in the 70s when women would yell at you for holding the door for them. I mean, I literally had that happen to me. Mm, You know, I still hold doors for people, you know, but do you really want a world in which all of those ideals are gone? In which case what you are really doing is setting up the world to turn it over to the barbarians, or actually in many cases, I would argue you're inviting the barbarians in. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so so in, in, by inviting the, the barbarians in, <clears throat> the way, what I'm hearing you say is we're losing sort of the internal restraints mm-hmm. because I think that one of the things that chivalry presupposes is that there is an unequal distribution of certain goods. For example, it's not simply that women are served by knights but the knights serve justice for all, including those who are, you know, poor or in the lower classes, peasants, whatever, I mean, if we're in know, yeah. medieval in, and world. It, and it's ideal. Right. And it's ideal. It's a, And that's what ideals are. I mean, ideals, we have to, you know, you know, ideals are to be striven for. There is, there's, it's easy to, to identify lapses because we all fall yeah. short. Right. But. But just because we fall short doesn't mean the ideal is is absurd or you know uh, Worthless in fact, it it may it, that may that may actually imply that it's even more important to pursue, right? But, but I, I guess this this idea, you know with like today we hear a lot about privilege and how this is like this this awful thing uh, Nevertheless there seems to be an implicit sort of message to those of us who are privileged that we should s- should look after those in the interest of those who are not which I think is good So mm-hmm. now to be absolutely real listen, you know, let's just be mm-hmm. this just, just be real Okay, so I am a uh, an american Which immediately uh, automatically puts me into a very exclusive club In the in the sort of the total population of the world and I, I i'm part of the western tradition which has has uh, given the world, science—it's given the world great literature. It's given the art, the world great art. I mean, there, I, I am part of this marvelous patrimony. So I, I enjoy a uh, uh, many things that people in other parts of the world don't enjoy. Now, if I had a comp- a, a thoroughly egalitarian sort of mindset, which said, "Oh, it's wrong." To just—it's just by prima facie wrong to have anything when somebody else doesn't have it. I would just live with perpetual guilt, <laughs> which is which is what most of these people seem to do. Yeah, I I, I believe that.
2: Taking.
0: Yeah, I I believe though that these things are you know, and and then you add on to that, you know, male the fact that I'm a man and so forth, and I've got some resources and I own property and da 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 da. I'm in probably the top 10% uh, in terms of, you know, resources, ability, personal sort of presence, all these different things in the entire world population. So I can pretend that these things aren't true, or I can decide to live in a chivalrous way and sense that, okay, I, in other words, I, there's, I can never get away from this. I can't deny this. I can't pretend that I was, you know, like Steve Martin, I was born, (laughs) you know, the, the line I'm getting, you know, from, uh, from his film, you know, uh, the jerk, you know, I was (laughs) pouring a poor plaque (laughs) job. I can't can't pretend that ever, (laughs) even though I've had some hardship in my life, but he, I can never pretend that that. So what should I do? I should, I should take this stuff and put it, into the service of the human race, right?
1: Yeah, I've always argued a chivalrous thing to do. Right, yeah, um, I've always argued, well, or, or it's the Spider-Man thing with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> I mean, you know, right. it, you know, this concept has been sort of around forever in different forms. Um, and you're right, there are, I don't think that there's anything wrong with privilege. OK, it, it, it's a fact of life in a world where inequality exists.
2: And, and, and there's, a, there's a term rather than, than move it to the, you know, to, to allow a certain cultural interpretation and category. But there was a term once upon a time that Christians had and it was used properly rather than materialistically, and it was called blessing. Yes, right. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 uh, we prayed, uh, the, the people of our spiritual tradition as Christians, from the patriarchs to today, using patriarchs wisely, prayed, bless me, Lord, to be blessed, to have God's favor sit on them. And that favor always had huge things that both had responsibilities, but also allowed one to flourish in ways that it wasn't merely a blessing. There was never a blessing for myself. It was a lineage. It was a people. It was the community of faith. It was the church. So, so the, the blessing, therefore, the world through the church. So, yeah. you know, for for God to bless a people, Israel, was to bless all the nations, to bless them with the, with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, becomes a blessing into the nations. I mean, you, when you convert that into such a perverse category of privileges, though, you know, you know, and I get, I mean, the scripture you have, don't, you know, you rich people, don't leave the poor people out. You don't start eating before everyone else. I, I get that argument, but that's a very different argument than this new one, that if you have any blessing more than someone else, somehow there is, there has injustice. been an input, input into that, some
1: injustice. Right. Yeah. And, you know, my argument has always been, yeah, you know what, there are a lot of privileges that, that we have. And the solution to that is not to worry about the privileges per se, it's to extend them. To extend those privileges to those who don't currently have them. It's, the, it's exactly the concept you're talking about with blessing, that when you're blessed, you are blessed to be a blessing when you are privileged you are privileged to extend privilege to others to work to to work for a more just world and that you know the, the the focus there's a perverse sort of focus in this whole thing on envy um envy is the flip side of pride pride is the desire to force yourself ahead of all others um envy is the desire to tear down anyone who's in front of you and the focus on privilege, it seems to me, in our current culture is really envy. It's, it's really about tearing down anyone who is perceived as being ahead. You, yeah. The proper way to achieve uh, a better society is not to tear down the people who are ahead. It's to raise up the people who are behind.
0: Yeah. Well, and two, I think that, I think we need to be realistic about what's achievable. Sure. So, um, we're in a fallen world. Well, not just that but I mean just that the god has uh, Unequally distributed certain goods. So for example, some people are always going to be stronger than other people mm-hmm. Right. Some people are going to be smarter than other people Some people are going to be born into families that have connections uh, Some people are going to be born into families that have a great deal of artistic talent You know, there there are going to be these inequities and we can either we can either construe those inequities as being something to to sort of uh, sort of uh, uh, see as uh, heinous, or we can see them as a means by which God has made us depend on each other, so that okay, you have this, Glenn; you have this, Tom; I have this. We need each other. We can't just sort of pretend that we're completely worlds unto ourselves yeah we all have gifts and there are going to be people within this this uneven uneven distribution who have gifts that are more i guess uh fitted for leadership so for example if a person um may have you know let's say a person has has great uh, physical strength, but doesn't know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. and, and there's somebody who comes along and says, I've got something for you to do Yeah, I need your help because I'm not, well, for one thing I'm, I'm physically not strong enough to do what you can do. But secondly um, I've got other things to think about and I have I only have so much time in the day mm-hmm. and I need this done. You know, I'll pay you for it. I'll pay you a just wage or whatever. But I, I want you to do this for me and I need to direct you in the process. This, by the way, is what, you know, Aristotle gets a lot of heat for talking about natural slaves. What he meant by that is that there are some people who do not possess uh, enough intelligence to know how to direct their efforts intelligently. Now that could be a pedagogical problem. That could be, a, you know, it could be a natural thing. Just some people, for some reason, just don't have certain intellectual gifts. Now, within the framework that Aristotle presents, and this is, of course, in the politics and the ethics, the same thing applies in a world without slaves. It, it applies in a place where people sell their labor to other people. In other words, this, there are there are some people who think and plan, and they need people to do things according to plan. <laughs> and there are other people who don't want to plan, who don't want to think. They just want to show up and get their and do the work and go home and do what they want to do. So, so you get my point. There's always So, you, going to be yeah, so in
2: some cases, you have sort of an architect, and then you have the painter who comes in and paints the, the rooms for the architect. Very different goals, aims, and everything else and 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 definitely there's you know different rewards for for each kind of contribution and and that can and and I think maybe that that's where you know I, I'm these you know equalitarians or egalitarians um they they may think that certain things that are valued more highly shouldn't be valued so highly or the other way around things that have been culturally considered of lower value, um, are not rewarded the same way. So they, they kind of step into, I think that, that kind of, that, that framework. Um, but they don't, you know, again, you know, those kind of questions still are working from the assumption that a, one can flatten certain kinds of goods and 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 the values placed on those goods in such a way that there is no way to differentiate them. And it, it's simply not even conceivable, much less possible. You know, I mean it's it's there's going to be a radically different set of valuation placed on someone who can create the architectural structure of Notre Dame or something else, then the person is going to lay the brick for it. It just, it it just, it's going to be like that. Um, And and it should be like
1: that. (laughs) Having said that one of my favorite cathedrals in Europe is the cathedral in Antwerp. It's a beautiful cathedral in and of itself, but the thing that I am most taken with is on the west, west facade to the south side, there is a monument to the people who built it, to the yeah. masons and the, the mathematician, you know, architect types and things like that, because most, we have no idea who this was in most cases, even the architects. But so but there's, but there's a place for a monument to those people. Yeah, but, but having said that, you're right. The, they would never have been able to conceive of the overall design of the cathedral, and and sort of the 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 macro picture of what's going on.
2: And and they're yeah, I mean you're, you're right. Scale. That's right. They're indispensable to it in the value, the value, of, the dignity of their work. That's mm-hmm. not the question. Right. Right. um and and that that there that someone's better than someone else I, Christianity does away with that what we're talking about is different valuations of the kind of contribution to something you know um, all is needed all contributes and and yet that doesn't mean every single thing every sort of gift is of the same blessing I mean one, one can think of it from a different uh, set of, of, of the world. Um, there are people who make some of the most stunning instruments out of handcrafted wood, selected wood. That's an art in and of itself. They may not be able to play a lick or two or a chord on the guitar, but they can make one that somebody who does have the gift is able to lift that thing into almost uh, another, you know, another world of aesthetics. And so you need both and both have their own place, but the one making it um, and may not be able to play something and the one who's able to play it but cannot make anything, they're completely dependent on each other. And their, their gifts flourish in a, in, in a relationship to each other, but they're different gifts and there's going to be a different value. No one goes to a concert or only a few Well, Maybe there's a few guitarists out there who says, you know, what? you know, that great guitarist, you know, the whole time they're just focusing on the person who made that guitar. Now there are good guitars and you think, wow, that guitar sounds great the whole concert. Um, but most of the time you're thinking about the person who plays it well. That's a different valuation than the guy who made the guitar. Doesn't mean they're less important, it le- has less dignity, but the the emphasis is very different. Nobody's buying a CD because somebody strictly is playing, you know, a Martin or, you know, a custom-made acoustic. Maybe that adds the difference to their sound, but the the reason is is that person can play. They play beautifully. But
0: I would I would I would assume though, Tom, that the 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 person who most appreciates the artisan is the guy who's playing the guitar.
2: Well, that's right. That's yeah. right. And, and, and maybe they're the one the whole time saying, I could never have done this without the one who did this. Right. And so the appreciation there and, and the respect for the gift is there. I mean, that's why you often see people who build very beautiful buildings on the ground, close friends with the people who are digging the the, the foundations. Yes. yes. Yeah,
0: I, th- I think that sometimes uh, there are surprising friendships for people who are sort of outside of the of a world who look in on it, uh, who might not have any ability to sort of understand the dynamic that goes yeah. on. In the sense that, say, a great a great musician under- understands that part of his greatness has to do with the ability to play a great instrument. That's no right. No one, no one who, who's just listening to music has an ability to dis- discern yeah a, a mediocre instrument from a good instrument from a great instrument
2: yep yes that's right and and it does make a difference to the musician there is a world of difference between a, a very bad instrument and a well-constructed and it does make a lot of the difference in the performance of of the performer so i mean he, this is what i'm saying is where different blessings and and what you would oftentimes think of is you know there the the the, if you were talking of cultural praise or, or recognition, are very different. I mean, nobody's going to buy, like, again, there's probably not, other than buying the instrument or being granted the instrument, there's probably not a lot of funds going from the great performer CD sales to the person who made it. So, yeah, you can charge a lot for the instrument and you may get a lot of people buying the instrument because X plays it, you know, or Clapton plays it or whatever. But on the other hand, it, it, it's disproportionate. Um, is that an injustice? You know, that's, I think, where these people go.
0: Yeah, I, I th- and I think that's what undermines the, the value of, that we once placed on chivalry. You know, the, the chivalrous person yeah. understands that the reason I possess these gifts is so that I can serve other people. Yeah. It's not merely to yeah. you know, sort of uh, present myself as better than them or lorded over them. Uh, but it doesn't. It, but but chivalry accepts the gift. It doesn't pretend. Yeah, you know, you you some come across this. I'm just like you. No, you're not. (laughs) You're not just like the rest of us. You really do have certain things going for you that other people don't have. So don't be embarrassed by that. That's That's right. Problem. That's that's the problem with egalitarianism. Is it, it plays these stupid games. Yeah. Oh, I'm just like no. You're not. There are some people who have gifts that are greater yeah. than other people and let's just accept it. Now, I think, yeah. you know, there are a couple of, there are a couple of areas where we don't appear to have as much difficulty accepting the inequities. I think one is music. I think the other is sport. Yeah. Using and sport t- tend to be the places where we we're we're willing to accept, okay, that guy really can do things I can never do.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah and and you know again we you know no one wants to close close off the, the biblical fact that there are injustices there are things that do not give people that do for a lot of reasons maybe someone hates women or they hate people of a particular race or they don't think they're equal and those are those are sin and and but those but those things are not answered by punishing blessing and those that have been blessed because what you're doing is actually shutting the door on the very way in which that integrated whole is contributing to everyone's flourishing, um, in the long run. Um, it's, it's, it's your gift and, 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 and it's, it's, it's all the gifts around me that help, you know, it's all those hand crafting instrument makers that make my guitar playing well. Right. So, so, so in that sense, I am I for someone with full character, chivalry for that matter. Someone who recognizes that responsibly, utilizes their gift to be a great performer in honor of all of those who have have laid the ground foundation for them, and in some senses lifted their work and their craftsmanship to a level at which other. Others are benefited, and you can also see the full display of the gift that their craftsmanship has provided by someone performing and using it well. So it's all connected.
1: Yeah, and I I am not a craftsman by any stretch of the imagination, but I could imagine that the great luthier who makes this stunning guitar Mm. is finds his greatest satisfaction in placing that guitar in the hands of a musician who can really bring out everything that's in it. In it. And And, and what is... Yeah, and and so they end up actually collaborating in a sense and mutually um, finding joy in each other's work.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. This uh, this
0: kind of reminds me in a weird way of um, uh, of Howard Finster. Hmm. Now Howard Finster is a you know was a Baptist preacher who <laughs> was a funky dude. He was a folk artist. It's I collect his work, <laughs> in Paradise Garden, all that. His and, cotton uh, cloud
2: things are amazing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, his his some of his his works today go for tens of thousands of dollars. And I suspect that there'll be a day when, you know, they're going for hundreds of thousands. Um, I think the thing that only, I think the thing that depresses their value is there's so much of it. He, he produced so much stuff. Yeah. Uh, But what, what, what sort of put him in the spotlight was the fact that, that internationally celebrated rock bands took an interest
2: in him. Oh, uh, well, R.E.M. Was it R.E.M. out of G- Georgia? Yeah. R.E.M.
0: and Talking Heads and a bunch, ah. of other, a, a bunch of other bands. They would take pilgrimages to Paradise Garden where Howard Finster did his thing.
1: Interesting. And,
0: and, and the thing about it is they were able to see, they, they could, they, because they were artists, Yeah, they could see something in his work yeah. that they could identify with and they liked. Interesting, and uh, you know Howard Finster was old time preacher. He would tell yeah. them they were going to hell, and they needed- <laughs> all this kind of stuff. And in fact, he he was. I think he was. Uh, he his work was put on display at the Met in New York, and he he, he gave them a hellfire brimstone message. <laughs> you know, when he was given an opportunity to speak. But anyway, but but when you see his stuff, now there are some folks who look at it. These are the Philistines who look yeah. at it and say, "Oh, that's just craziness. Yeah, that's just insane." people who have a sense of sort of genius who yeah. say that crazy old Georgia preacher
2: yeah.
0: had something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he had something that that, that is rare, and so yeah. then they became his advocates. Yeah, yeah, in a strange way, all these very sophisticated, highly educated, well-heeled people took this poor Baptist preacher and made him a phenomenon.
2: And, and he was an interesting Baptist preacher because he was able to juxtapose that that Baptist preacherly kind of Southern world, and he would have, if I remember right, he had things like with Elvis and oh, and yeah. some other <laughs> other figures. So you Barely can see how. <laughs> yeah. So you can see how he, he like pulled in these kind of the, these people that w- the otherwise were, were very separated and their attention would be drawn to this. And he was able to kind of to fit right in, into that, that kind of odd. Did,
0: did you ever see his illustrated Cadillac?
2: I don't know if I it was had an uh, actual Cadillac uh, and he had painted
0: all these figures on it. And so it's, <laughs> but that, but that's it. So you needed to have a sense of kind of a, uh, you had to be a genuine creative. Yeah. See, yeah. in this very primitive man, I mean, he was he was unschooled. Yeah. Never been to art school, but he just had it. There was something about his angle of vision. Yeah. That, that other artists would say that guy is got it. That's something yeah. I want to connect to. In fact, yeah. I put a bid in on a piece by Robert Finster or yeah. to Howard Finster, I should say, Howard yeah. Finster. That had been owned by Robin Williams. Uh-huh. Think about that. So, Robin Williams, think about that. You know, super wealthy. Yeah. He had in his home a Howard Finster. And yeah. you know what a Howard Finster is? It's got scripture all over it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's telling uh, you that you're going to hell if you don't go to yeah. you know, apocalyptic you go to imagery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think, though, that when you have, when you're REM or you're the talking heads, and you see a Howard Finster, you can say, you know what? A lot of these people out there who are our, who are in our audience don't understand what true genius is. Yeah, we're going to help you see where you would overlook.
2: And you know, this is a, this is another show. And I, and I know we went down, down a lot of trails like we always do. But I think REM and 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 some of these other roots figures under they. The more you tap into roots of anything, the more you start to get into the spiritual foundations. And they understand that Howard Finster and the kind of folk music that they were tapping into um, sh- share a very common spiritual root, that kind of that kind of world. So R.A.M. may not be pursuing those ends, but the roots of their folkish kind of disposition in Georgia and in that world, grew out of those spiritual traditions that Finster's art grew out of they did not grow out of you know something you know something else so there's a weird connectedness and i think this is the stuff that lewis and other figures were uh, people were able to tap into is that there's this deep connectedness in the roots the cultural roots and the spiritual foundations especially the christian you know the differing kind of Christian impact of the early roots of, of America. You know American culture that um, that that end up in these weird kind of mixes. But people like that have an antenna for which a lot of people, even theologically attuned, don't realize is going on.
0: Well, and getting back to Glenn's, you know, subject. <laughs> I was wondering how we. Oh, got that's it. right. That's right. <laughs>
1: <you go>. Sorry.
0: <laughs> I think I think that when REM and the Talking Heads. Saw Howard Finster. They did something chivalrous Would you what what do you think about my my weird idea there Glenn? Do you do you you (laughs) see them in the sense that here? They are these world-renowned rock stars They see Howard Finster and they say You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna become that guy's advocate or I'm gonna I'm gonna point to him and say there's something valuable here.
1: Is that chivalrous? It's it's kind of an odd use of the word chivalry, but I think it 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 fits the spirit of it. It's a recognition that you know this guy that nobody else was really paying a heck of a lot of attention to, except some folk art collectors, uh, maybe, who was completely on the margins of polite society. If even on the margins that's right even on the planet (laughs) you know that that they were recognizing in him there's a degree of humility that's involved in that you know that says that you know what this is a guy that most people don't recognize but the fact is that there's genius here
2: yeah Um, and even most from the baptist world won't recognize you know right right yeah Yeah. Uh,
1: um, so, yeah, I, I, it, it, there, there's a kind of chivalry involved in that as well. I mean, uh, uh, again, if you think of it as the two poles, the, the right-hand side is sort of the marshal and the left-hand side is the humble, service-oriented, that sort of thing. It really does kind of land on that other side where it is, um, you know, recognizing and acknowledging and paying tribute to someone that is um would otherwise largely be ignored that actually and and you know it's interesting because
2: it's it's somebody who you know i you know like like both of you we both have a foot in the academic scene some some ways and 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 in just being theological and christian we have our feet in worlds that um, are in many ways you know, what the world doesn't see much of the relevant value for. So you could almost use it by analogy of Finster's work, you know. I mean, what what we're dealing with, with, with all of us, and, and kind of what we would say is kind of Christianity with integrity is non-utilitarian, <laughs> like good art. Um, and so the aesthetic value is very underappreciated the antenna for it is uh, is is only appreciated by certain kinds of spiritually disposed people and so we do suffer you know there is a certain suffering for a commitment to that because the world doesn't you know especially a world that is pragmatic and and geared towards um, a certain product for a certain kind of human flourishing When it doesn't answer that immediately the way the world defines it, it therefore is undervalued, underpaid, and underappreciated, right? So whatever other cultural capital you may have, that aspect of what we do doesn't have it. And yet on the other side, um, we have a set of riches tied to that that, that… that can be found nowhere else, you know. I always tell my, my students in theology is, what is it about Christianity that it's only Christianity that has? When you tap that, you finally realize something that no one else can can wrap up and sell. You find out what we have, the pearl of great price that no one else has, and then you can start to build everything around it. I said, although what's at the heart of that is the world's rejection of it <laughs> in terms of it as value. Even though it's the most valuable, it's the pearl of great price. People see it. They'll give up everything for it. If you wrap it in the world's kind of value terms, it's the most rejected thing, right? It's, right. And, and so what happens here is the, the valuation, like when we talk of chivalry, you're, you're cultivating all these dispositions that on the one hand are valued in relationship to that pearl of great price and those who live and are committed to it and they understand it. But then in a world that has rejected the Pearl at Great Price, those things become conflictual and problematic. And so that, that what, what appears to be chivalry now appears to be something that is in conflict with the values of the age. And, and so you almost come to an either or position. And so this, this kind of place at which, you know, you raise a child to be chivalrous, but he, he goes, to, he or she goes to school with people who are not, date someone who isn't or hasn't been even cultivated in a church committed to that. What you begin to see is some of the things I think that, um, that I think, you know, the church doesn't know how to digest. How, how do we take the good things that Lewis is saying and what you're talking about and cultivate community in such a way that not only recognizes that this is a value and this is a good and this balances things, but also what values we have to cultivate to allow people to live in the world with it and develop relationships with it in a world that rejects it.
0: Well, I think the thing that, uh, and to tie into what you're saying, Tom, um, the thing that I see in chivalry is the recognition of the chivalrous man Okay, because it was a masculine virtue is that there are some things that are undervalued in the world Mm -hmm. And uh prowess You know martial prowess I don't know if there's ever been a culture that undervalued it or failed to recognize its value every every culture Every state knows that this is important Maybe we're the first <laughs> to entertain the <laughs> positive
1: <laughs> that it's not, which is a really weird thing. But although, although you'll notice that in our culture, the Navy SEALs, for example, oh, yeah. are recognized as people that are sort of set apart.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. That's so exactly right. You now, recognize but, the elites. So, but, but now what I was getting at with my Finster illustration was the idea that the celebrated, the REMs, the talking heads of the world, can be the spokesman for the undervalued, can say, so let's think about women. Let's think about, okay, here I am. I'm a knight. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows how great I am.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's The 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 knightly
2: outfit gives it away. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let
0: me tell you about my lady who's undervalued you know she is worthy of your regard and i'm going to show you that she is by demonstrating my regard for her so i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to give you an example and you know i think when it's done right it's not a show it's it's an actual confession that i couldn't be what i am without her yeah. right <laughs> so uh it's a way for The one who has been so I would I would argue, you know, there are people who say chivalry is that I would say no No, it's not wherever there is uh, someone Who is recognized by You know society at large as being important That person has an opportunity to exercise chivalry (laughs) To recognize other people like the Howard Finsters of the world who have not been recognized and Say, come up here with me. I think that you're great. You know, there's something about what you've done that's really great. And these other people here, these Philistines, <laughs> 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 they yeah. don't know. I know. <laughs> you know, like like the like the musician with the guitar maker. You yeah,
2: know yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting from the theological world. I'm not a big fan of his theology. Wolfhart Pannenberg, the famous German theologian. But what is interesting is every single conference, and I saw him when I was in Oxford, he did an actual presentation. It, well, he was in his 80s, so he, he was still flying around doing these. But his wife was right beside him, and my, a friend of mine was writing a dissertation on, on, on Pannenberg and would fly to visit Pannenberg. And, then, and, and when he came back, he said, the first thing you do before you meet with Ponenberg is you meet with his wife. And and he goes, and the second thing is she has to read your work on him before she even recommends whether you should meet with him or not. <laughs> she had read every single thing written on Ponnenberg that was known. And she was, you know, I'm not saying every wife has to do that. But what I'm saying is there's this is an interesting way in which his... He, his gift and his theological contribution would never have been what it was had his wife not had that same commitment to what he did. And yet there was no Ponnenberg without her. But on the other hand, it was vice versa. There was no her without the Ponnenberg. And here you have this, this thing that didn't have to become competitive. It was complete with all the difference in that kind of union that was their marriage and, their, and the, the calling as well.
0: All right. Well, we've gotten to the point where we should probably wrap things up. I think we're past an hour or, or more. Glenn, is there anything you want to say? We've, again, as normal, we've kind of taken your theme and just taken it to weird places.
1: That's uh, kind of an understatement. I, I, I'd like to just sort of go back briefly to those three themes, you know, sort of the, the issue of prowess. Uh, capability, you know, in in terms of, well, originally martial prowess, but other sorts of prowess, I think we can add to it. Um, I don't know anybody who, any guy in particular, who wants to be incompetent in their area of work. Nobody really wants to. That's a fundamental element of chivalry. But it also involves, like I said, I would argue, more broadly, skill in in other areas as well, physical ability, all of those kinds of things. It's, I think that's really important to most males. Um, the second area is the courtly love tradition, that we need to recover a proper kind of respect for women. That, uh, again, I think the absolute antithesis of it is the uh, pornographication of our culture. It is the antithesis of what the courtly love tradition and proper respect for women ought to be. And then the third one is the one that ties everything together, and that's a recovery of a holistic gospel that recognizes that when we say crown him Lord of all, Jesus is Lord of all. There's nothing that's not included in all. And so that in all of our endeavors as men, in all of our endeavors in our relationships with women, in all of our the battles that we choose to fight and the ones that we refrain from, in all of our dealings with people in, in utter courtesy and respect, all of these things we're doing it as a reflection of the one who deserves our complete and total fealty. So it seems to me that these themes from chivalry are things that would be incredibly valuable to recover in our cultural moment because they speak to a lot of the fundamental issues that men in our society are facing, and particularly Christian men. Well, I
0: think that's a good note to end on. Um, Thank you, Glenn, for uh, introducing the theme of chivalry. Anyway, anything you want to say as we conclude, Tom?
2: No, I think I mean I think the emphasis on retrieving um, in, in retrieval of, of of a lot of these historic um, lost riches, you know, um, has been our theme anyway, and this is another area that 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 we need to explore. And it really helps carve the path forward to what it means to embody the faith and, and the richness of our createdness as men in the world.
0: Well, that's uh, a that's great thought, and I don't have anything to add. So thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast, and uh, we hope to have you back with us next week. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.